So today is uh, the second installment, I guess you could call it, in our summer uh, breakaway from the lectionary. And we're going to be continuing to look at the lives of the apostles in the early days following our Lord's heavenly enthronement and the resulting day of Pentecost that sparked that dramatic growth in the fledgling Christian church. And if you remember from last week, one of those uh, kind of dramatic days from that period included the healing of a lame man at the beautiful gate in the temple and the big crowd that it had drawn and how on seeing the crowd that uh, Peter had taken that door of opportunity to preach about Jesus as the one who had made the lame man's healing possible and how he went on from there and, and spoke of Jesus' crucifixion and his resurrection and his ascension, penetrating the hearts of his hearers and calling them away from the dead religion of the scribes and Pharisees and into a radical new faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's exactly where our reading picks up today. So I hope, of course, that you're following along uh, in your own Bible in front of you. We're going to be reading Acts chapter 4, and I'm going to be reading verses uh, 1 to, to 31. So Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. And as they were speaking to the people, this is Peter and John, as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed and the number of men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in their midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? And then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man... By what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that you rejected, the builders which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. And so they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. 
For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. And when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted up their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they were gathered together was shaken and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. And brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord to us today. Let's pray. God, our Father, we thank you so much for the, the witness and the testimony of these two holy men who spoke out boldly, uh, refusing to be uh, silenced, refusing to be bullied, refusing to back down from what they knew that was true. And so, Father, we pray the same holy boldness for ourselves, and we pray the same Holy Spirit that filled them uh, would fill this place now and would fill these words and would fill our hearts with the message that you have for us today, because we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So today's reading, you know, marked kind of a, a dynamic shift in the lives of the early believers. Uh, and it was really kind of an outstanding victory for, uh, for the apostles. But as we saw, hardly had the victory been won when the counterattack came. And, and it came from three sources. It came from the priests. It came from the captain of the temple guard. And it came from the Sadducees. Uh, the priests, if you remember, were charged with obeying the laws of the temple and uh, even though under their Roman occupation they had very little political power left, they still retained immense influence among their Jewish brothers and sisters because they officiated the worship services and they carried out the rites and rituals and sacrifices uh, mandated by the word of God. And they were assisted in their duties by the, those temple guards, right? I mean, think about it. The temple had treasures that had to be protected. It had order that had to be maintained. And that captain of their guard uh, accompanied the higher level Jewish officials not only for their personal protection, but uh, to receive and to pass on the orders and to carry out the judicial sentences. Uh, and those orders and those judgments and those sentences came down from the Sadducees. And these guys were really kind of a peculiar breed. Uh, they were a very wealthy, uh, aristocratic politically ambitious bunch, and they actually lived and behaved more like Greeks than they did like Jews. Because even though they claimed faith in the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, uh, they kind of believed God to be remote and uninvolved in human affairs, and they actually rejected all notions of life after death, of resurrection, of, of angels, of eternal punishment, uh, or especially the idea of lame men that could be healed. But today they had a huge problem on their hands because as we read, and I think this, this line is actually kind of funny, uh, seeing the man who was healed standing beside him, they had nothing to say in opposition, right? What, what are you going to say when he's standing right beside you? Uh, 
But besides that, it, it was sundown. And nighttime trials violated Jewish law. Now, of course, they had conveniently set that regulation aside when they wanted to arrest Jesus a few months back. But as always, political power has its privileges. And they thought, who knows, maybe a night in jail would bring these two troublemaking apostles to their senses and make them more compliant in the morning when they could be questioned by the full Sanhedrin, the, the Jewish Congress that operated uh, kind of like a uh, legislative body and a judiciary rolled all into one. Uh, and one commentator said on this, no doubt the two apostles had a difficult night, uh, physically at least, but the next morning the Sanhedrin would be the ones squirming as they learned an important lesson about the gospel which is you can lock up the messengers, but you cannot contain or restrain the message, right? You can lock up the messengers, but you can't lock up the message. But one thing for sure, the temple authorities knew they had a very serious public relations problem to manage. And so they had to squelch these rogue teachers, but their preaching had already won at least 5,000 converts. And remember this, 5,000 men, so that didn't include their families. Can you imagine what would happen if we had 5,000 members in this church, right? I mean, and just think about the impact we could have on this community. So, so these 5,000 men represented a very significant uh, force on the side of Peter and John against the establishment. So the Jewish leaders couldn't just kill them, right? Uh, no, the temple elite needed them to recant their faith instead so that their following would kind of disintegrate. And so we read on the next day their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem. And when they had set Peter and John in their midst, they inquired by what power or by what name did you do this? And then Peter filled with the Holy Spirit said, rulers of the people and elders, if we're being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man and by what means that this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. By him, this man is standing before you well. Amen. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. So in other words, church, he's saying Jesus is the foundation of reality and of ultimate truth. And he is set perfectly as the basis for determining every other measurement from there. And he's the anchor point that everything else has to be aligned to. And church, that has to remain our bold declaration today. Because just like in the days of the apostles, there are still powerful forces, both spiritual and political, that want to keep us silent. And their playbook is always the same. The rejection of God, the elevation of self, and the ultimate deification of the state. That's what Peter and John were facing, right? And believers are still battling that in 21st century America beginning with the rejection of God, unfortunately, even in the institutional church. Remember, the, the Sadducees rejected large sections of the Old Testament. They only believed in the first uh, five books, just the books of Moses, and they kind of dumped all the rest. And so they had only a partial and incomplete view of God. Now, probably fewer professed believers in Jesus today would openly admit to ignoring parts of Scripture or uh, to dismissing whole sections of it as irrelevant. But that problem is actually endemic. Uh, from, and we were just talking about this in Sunday school this morning. It's so sad. From the majority of congregational churches in the country now, in fact, uh, we're the last one left in Florida uh, who doesn't ignore scriptures like Leviticus 20 and 
1 Corinthians 6 and 1 Timothy 1 and Hebrews 13, uh, congregational churches all over Florida that have kind of just chucked those out the door so they can embrace the gay and trans community. Right? We, were, we were one of two churches in Florida, uh, congregational churches that aren't sold out to the gay agenda, and now we're the last one. Uh, to, to, to the point where, and this is not part of the sermon, but to the point where we've talked about in council, the sad fact that we may even need to think about changing our name just because we're painted with that same brush uh, as all of those other congregational churches out there that have kind of chucked the Bible out the door. Uh, but even the Southern Baptist Convention, now reinterpreting the Bible through the lens of critical race theory, all the way down to these seeker-sensitive worship services happening everywhere across the country this morning, who tailor their worship to the prevailing culture rather than to the word of God, which in turn feeds directly into the elevation of self. Right? You see, the Sadducees held on to a particular view, a particular brand of belief because it allowed them to justify the things they wanted to do and to live the way that they wanted to live. Does that sound familiar? And that's exactly what we're seeing today with the political left, because believe me, brothers and sisters, leftism is not a political ideology anymore. It is a full-fledged religion, complete with forced confessions, inquisitions, public rituals, excommunications. They have their own sacred texts, and they have blasphemy laws. And if you don't believe me, just go to a public site on social media and say something like abortion is murder. Or go to a public social media site and try asserting that only biological women are real women and see what happens to you. Uh, because the prevailing theology of the church of leftism now has only two options. Either submit to their hive mind groupthink or be labeled a homophobe or a racist or a bigot which has to be driven out of polite society. Which, by the way, is exactly how the state becomes deified. And, and again, the playbook hasn't changed. Because the people that reject the one true and living God always go on to elevate themselves until they actually put themselves in the place of God. Right? It's happened all through history. Think about what happened at the Tower of Babel, right? The people refused to obey God's commands to spread out and fill the earth. And what did they do? They decided all on their own to build a tower to reach into heaven and take the place and the position of God. Think about what happened with the Egyptians, right? After the uh, the flood, one of Noah's three sons named Ham, the, the youngest of his sons, of his four sons, uh, had four sons of his own. I'm sorry, Noah had three sons and then his son had four sons, excuse me. Uh, Genesis 10, 6 says the sons of Ham were Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. So Egypt, of course, founded a nation. In fact, it was the same nation that uh, Psalm 78:51 later called the land of Ham. And so even though this had only been with them one generation since God's severe judgment of the earth, the land of Egypt very quickly became a godless and worldly power that saw the rise of the pharaonic system where rulers actually saw themselves as living gods. Think about what happened in Rome after the populace became decadent and self-involved. and Civil wars started breaking out between groups with competing loyalties, which eventually brought about the transformation of the Roman Republic into the empire of Julius Caesar, who in 42 BC was formally deified as the divine Julius, uh, which actually spawned the cult of emperor worship that required all of its citizens to at least once a year just throw a little pinch of incense on a burning altar and proclaim Kaiser Kyrios, Caesar is Lord. 
and get back their little compliance certificate that had to be renewed annually and which failure to produce uh, said certificate on demand branded you a traitor to the state and led directly to the persecution of Christians who even though they wanted to be good citizens and wanted to honor the emperor refused to acknowledge anyone as Lord other than Jesus Christ. And, and they, they faced martyrdom. But in the face of it, boldly proclaimed in the same spirit as Peter and John, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Now, admittedly, modern day governments may not have altars and incense anymore, but they've done all those same things, right? They've totally rejected God and completely removed any mention from him from their party platforms. Uh, they've elevated individual rights to the point where uh, people can impose their own personally made up pronouns on other people and, and, and either persecute or prosecute you if you refuse to comply. Governments today have exalted themselves to the very place of God by the hubris of assuming to themselves the right to end the lives of preborn babies and to reassign the definition of male and female and to fundamentally alter the original gift of marriage that was established in the Garden of Eden long before any human government was formed and turn it on its head. And so where, where do we go from here? And what do we do when uh, we've been charged not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus? What do we do when we've been coerced to comply with the theology of political correctness and demanded to drop our little pinch of incense on the altar of the alt-left? Threatened with persecution by pink-haired lunatics in Planned Parenthood t-shirts. Well, the first thing we do is to follow the example of Peter and John by politely declining all of those options and ideas and then boldly declaring to everyone within earshot that Jesus Christ is Lord. Amen. And we want to do it in the same way Peter did. He didn't flinch. He didn't waffle. He didn't backpedal. He didn't give a safe answer. He just says again the same thing that landed him in prison to begin with. And so full of the Holy Spirit, Peter says, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And church, there it is in one sentence. The essence and the summary of Christianity. Jesus Christ Son of God, Savior of the world. And there is no other name, not just in Israel, but under heaven and in all of the earth. And there is no other name given to men, not just to the Jews, but to all of humanity by which we not only can be saved, but church must be saved. And that has to be our primary goal and our primary message. You know, but poking fun at the left and calling out their hypocrisy and pointing out their gaping errors is just a side benefit. Uh, and it's useful only so far as it provides a vehicle to steer people to the truth and to point them to the Savior. And only as it gives us the opportunity to gain a hearing, whether the people who end up hearing us want to hear what we have to say or not. Because, you know, the world hates this kind of talk, right? You guys know this. People don't mind so much if you speak about Jesus being one among many possible ways to heaven or one of many possible ways to God. But if you believe and speak what the Bible says that there is salvation in no other than be prepared to be laughed at and be prepared to be hated and to be considered hateful. But, you know, we, we can't stop anyway because letting people live and believe a lie is not loving. Right? We don't let little kids grab the pretty red burner on the kitchen cooktop or put a shiny 
new pair of scissors in the light socket just because they don't know any better, right? Or just because they think it seems right. Or just because they think it will make it ha them happy. And we mustn't do the equivalent of that with men and women in this world who are headed to hell apart from a Savior. And finally, church, we want to continue together in worship and fervent corporate prayer. Just as we read that uh, when they were released, when Peter and John were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth, the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with all the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And so, brothers and sisters, regardless of the forces we see and hear around us, be they, they spiritual or material or cultural or political, Jesus Christ is ruling and reigning right this minute from the throne of heaven. His divine power by means of the Holy Spirit is permeating this world. And the plans of God the Father are pulling together precisely as he planned them, regardless of any perceived evidence to the contrary. So that was the great hope of the apostles when they were being persecuted by those same authorities that had persecuted and killed Jesus Christ. And it is our hope and our strength today that church, our God is in heaven and he does whatever he pleases. The kings are not in control. The king of kings is in control. Not only then, but in all time. Right? God was in control in all of the Old Testament and in all of the New Testament. And in our day today, because as king, he's not so much unopposed as utterly unopposable. And so the apostles prayed, <coughs> Now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with boldness. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered was shaken, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God. And church, their prayer was answered, right? They spoke with boldness. And that has to be our prayer today, too. Lord, fill us with your Holy Spirit. Uh, Lord, be active and powerful in our lives and in our speech that we might speak your word with confidence against any opposition that comes our way. Because, church, the day is coming, and in some places even already here in this world, that it is illegal to preach some of the truths of the Bible. But that shouldn't slow us down. We should pray for even more boldness to overpower any opposition we might face. And to let the word of God win the victory as it changes the hearts and minds, even the hearts and minds of some of the hardest, most ardent opponents of the gospel. Just like it did in Peter and John's day. If you remember, this is a little further in the book of Acts. We read the message of God kept on growing and spreading and the number of disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem. And even a large number of priests were becoming obedient to the faith. Accepting Jesus as Messiah and acknowledging him as the source of eternal life. And so that means we can pray with confidence over the difficulties of this life and in a hope for salvation for those that we love and even redemption for those that loathe everything we stand for from the depths of their souls. <clears throat> because brothers and sisters, we serve a powerful and a mighty God. Amen. A God who is king over those who believe in him. A God who is king over those who don't. 
a God who is king over the rulers of this world, and we are on the winning side. And we have the privilege to take the precious and powerful name of Jesus Christ with us boldly wherever we go. Amen. Will you pray with me? God, our Father, by the resurrection of your Son, you conquered sin, you defeated death, you gave us hope of eternal life, redeeming all of our days by that victory, and make us bold, Lord, in it, we ask to praise you as we wait for the coming of your kingdom. We ask you, Father, to reach out now to any here or to any hearing this message that don't know you as Lord and Savior, that you would surprise them by the power of your presence, that you would open eyes and change hearts, and we trust in you, Lord, for all that you're about to do, in Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>